0: We are continuing in John's letter, his first letter, and it's in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. If you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So if you have ever gone to the street to, to evangelize or perhaps had someone come and talk to you, one of the big questions that is always asked at the end of a message or at the end of a, a, a time of evangelism is always the question of, would you like to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord? And that's something that has been always at the sort of the the linchpin of is this person going to become a Christian? But I often wonder if we really grasp the idea of what it means to confess Jesus as Savior. We use words like Savior quite often, especially in the Christian context. But do we really see Jesus as Savior? Do we confess Him as Savior? If we go back to last week and the past few weeks, this text is really about, do I really know he's with me? Do I really know that he's walking alongside me? And we talked about four different ways that we know. The first is, if we love one another, we know he's with us because Christians love one another, according to verse 12. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. He indwells in us in verse 13, and that's how we know he is with us. This week, we're going to talk about the third way we know he is with us. The rest of verses uh, 14 through 16 is that we confess Jesus, son of God, as savior. And if we do that, if we confess Jesus as savior, we know he is with us. It's something that we constantly do in a Christian context, but do we really understand what that means, what we're doing? So I'd like to look at that by first taking a look at the idea of confession. Do we understand what it means to confess? Just stop right there and really examine. Because look at what John says. And we have seen, verse 14, and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in in God, and that confession is Jesus as the Son of God, and that's also looking back to what Jesus as Son of God did, that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior. So we have to really begin with that word confess. What does Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, what does John mean by that? Is confession just simply a statement of words? If so, then it's possible that many do believe in Jesus, despite how we live, because how many people, whether it's ourselves or people we know, believe that they're going to heaven on the basis of a simple confession of their words. That one time when they were 10 years old, they went to a, some sort of camp or retreat and the speaker had said, if you want to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, raise your hand. And by repeating after me these words, I believe in Jesus, I confess Jesus as my Savior and Lord, that automatically means they're going to be with God forever. If it's just that, then it is so easy to think that simply the mere statement of the words themselves is a confession. But we're looking at this passage and we're seeing, no, there's more than that, because it's not just the words it's what you're believing in. Confession is not just some sort of incantation or a mantra. Words that we say and they the words themselves have some sort of magical power. That's not what a confession is. It's also not a Christian get out of jail card. You know, it's not, okay, I've done all these things, but I hold this confession this get out of jail card or this automatic to heaven card and as long as i have this card i can go to heaven doesn't matter what i do with my life doesn't matter what i believe as long as i have this card because when i was 10 years old i raised my hand i said jesus is my lord and savior and therefore this card this card will get me to heaven that's not what we're talking about and that's not what john says is a confession according to the bible This word confession, specifically in the Greek, it actually has a legal element to it. It's a promise, a covenant, a commitment, an oath. It means that on pain of punishment, you will fulfill this oath. Think of it like perjury. When you go on the witness stand in a courtroom and they say, Swear, raise your right hands, put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the nothing but the truth, so help me God. And if you break that truth, you can be convicted or tried, and um, you could be brought under indictment for perjury. And with perjury comes prison time. So there's, there's not just the statement, but there's the pain of punishment should you break that oath, that testimony. In the same way, this word confession has that idea. That it's more than just simply words. There's a, there's a consequence to what you say. Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, here comes the word, made the good confession. Same word, meaning that Jesus, in contrast to the Jewish leaders who were lying, who were falsely charging Jesus with all sorts of accusations that were based on nothing but lies, when Jesus was testifying before Pontius Pilate, he made a confession. That confession was, this is the truth, and everything I will do will back that up. So Jesus didn't just say words, right? He didn't just say, "I am truly," according to Mark 1 1462, listen to what Jesus says, "I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven." So Jesus wasn't just saying a bunch of random words and just sort of saying it just to get by. These are backed up by, first of all, his actions. He went to the cross. He did rise again. He did ascend to heaven. These are truths. There were no lies, no exaggerations. It was a confession of truth that would hold forever. It would never change. Not even death would stop his confession from being held to be true. Not even being forsaken and accursed by the Father would stop that confession. He went to that cross willingly. He wasn't forced there by the Romans or the Jewish leaders. He went willingly. He laid down his life of his own accord. And his confession was immovable. Nothing, no matter how big the Roman courts and Pontius Pilate seemed to be, and he had the Roman legions and soldiers all around him or the Jewish leaders, no matter how pressing and immovable that seemed, Jesus was even more immovable. I want to give you this illustration to illustrate this. A U.S. Navy radio communique uh, describes what happened. This actually was a historical event. So the voice, first voice says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. And the second voice says, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. And then the first voice says, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the second voice says, no, I say again, you divert your course. And the first voice says, this is the aircraft carrier enterprise. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. And the second voice says, this is a lighthouse. Your call. We stand on the solid rock of confessing Christ as Savior. All other ground is sinking sand. No matter how large or menacing, even a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, as powerful as it is, is nothing compared to the solid rock, impenetrable, impregnable, powerful force of God. And nothing, not even the Roman soldiers, not the U.S. Army, nothing can move and Push God aside. When we make a confession, we are confessing on that powerful, immovable, that force that is intractable. He, when we say that He is our shield, our fortress, we really believe that there is no power, not a virus, not a world government, not all the world governments in all the world, not all the military powers in all the world can stand. At all against the power of our God. That's what we confess. So let us not think that saying, I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, just simply raising of a hand and suddenly it's these words in and of themselves. No, there is a confession into someone. And we're going to look at what and who this someone is and what he has done. Notice that there are two ways that we confess Christ, according to verse 15 into we confess Jesus as sent by the father and secondly as we confess Jesus as savior of the world first verse 14 we confess Jesus as sent by the father the father has sent his son let us not forget the father sent his son or as john 3:16 says the father gave his son paul describes it another way according to romans 3:25 the father put forward his son. Let's not move quickly uh, past that. We need to be in awe and wonderment and puzzlement over why in the world would God send, give, put forward, knowing that his only son would undergo what he would undergo, which is incredible amounts of torment, agony, and forsakenness. Why would God do that? In fact, there are some people who believe that, that is so unknowable and strange. They call it cosmic child abuse. But we must never forget, first of all, that Jesus went to that cross willingly. It wasn't as though God forced him. Jesus laid down his life. He says in John ten eighteen, no one takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Remember, Jesus is God the Son, God incarnate. And there is a mystery there, which we won't go into today, between how Father and Son relate to one another. That is a mystery. But the Father is infinitely grieved in the Son bearing our sins. Let's not forget that. But also, the Father is infinitely joyous in the work of His Son to save sinners. And both are happening at the same time. Jesus was in infinite agony in bearing our cursedness, our forsakenness. But according to Hebrews 12, 2, look at what the Hebrews writer says in verse 2. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So Jesus bore the agony of the wrath of God on that cross. But at the same time, he bore the joy that was set before him for saving sinners, enduring that cross, having such joy and delight for all of us who would now be welcomed into his family as sons and daughters of his father, as brothers and sisters. When we see this word sent, we have to remember all that it took for the father and the son in that plan, that eternal plan before the foundations of the world. So let us remember that when we confess Jesus as the savior, we always have to remember he was the sent savior. That sending had a high cost, an infinitely innumerable cost that could never be paid back. Who could ever think we could ever come close? Even a a whole lifetime of works, good works, is but infinitesimally small compared to the cost of what Christ had done. The plan set, for Father and Son. So let us remember that confession is there always for us. And that's what stirs us on. It gives us resolve in this time, in this season. When you're feeling cooped up, when you're feeling, you're maybe at the precipice, feeling a little sorrow, depressed, possibly the creepings of self-pity creeping into your soul. Always go back to your confession. I confessed in that which is gigantic, enormous, that Christ was sent by the Father so that I might live. That makes you sore, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, and despair is stopped. Second, and here's we want to spend most of our time in, we see that we confess Jesus as the Savior of the world. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, Believing Jesus as Savior, there are a number of some assumptions that we make when we believe Jesus as Savior. First, Savior assumes inability. Remember that. Savior assumes inability. Most of my family that I'm looking at here, including myself, have been rescued from drowning. We all have accidentally fallen in the water, or most of us have, and have had to be rescued and saved. I remember falling into a pool accidentally when I was young. I didn't know how to swim. And if you have ever gone through this before, you know what happens. When you don't know how to swim, it's not as though you stop trying to get yourself out. You flail your arms and your legs. You do all that you can to try to save yourself. But the more you flail your arms and legs as you're drowning, guess what happens? You sink deeper and deeper in. There is nothing I could do but drown. All my efforts, all my energies, every ounce of desire to want to save my life, to make my life count, was actually causing me to drown more and more. It was killing myself. The reality was I could not save myself. And anyone who has come close to drowning, you know what that means. It took a savior, in this case, a friend of mine, to jump in and pull me out. To rescue me. It, I needed a savior. And this is a critical aspect of confessing Jesus as savior. You see, it's, it's not about, I need to know all the stories about Jesus. You know, if I knew all the stories about my friend, that wouldn't have helped me when I'm drowning. It really doesn't. It does nothing for you. Seeing Jesus as a good teacher does nothing. It's not about, oh, if I do these things for Jesus, then I... I'll be saved. It's no different than me climbing and clawing in the water, just splashing and tumbling away. If I think, okay, let me try to think back and think and analyze what swimming is like. In that moment, it doesn't work. Nothing works. You can't save yourself. Quite the opposite. It's the stark realization that we can't save ourselves. We're never good enough. We can't contribute at all, not even an ounce not a second to our salvation. You know, lifeguards, they know this the best. They know that the most dangerous person for them in that moment is the person they're saving. Because this has happened. I know some of many of you know this story. Lifeguards have even drowned. Because the person who's drowning, they can end up pulling that lifeguard under the water. And so you know what lifeguards are taught to do? with it? If that person is just flailing away and unwilling to let them be saved, the lifeguard has to take them and knock them out. I mean, you have to literally punch them or do whatever to make sure that they stop flailing away because they can drown both of you. So, this person, it's panicked, weak efforts. And I wonder how often we so regularly think we can save ourselves and sometimes the lifeguard has to knock you out. Sometimes, It is God's grace when we go through times of trial, when it's difficult, when there's suffering. Sometimes in order for the person to be truly saved, you have to be knocked out from all your efforts. What a time this is. You know, you have a choice. You can either see this time as, woe is me, everything is terrible, stuck inside, can't do anything. Or you can see it as an opportunity that sometimes... We've spent so much of our time running to and fro, taking our kids to this activity and that activity, working all day and working all night, going on vacation, traveling and doing all these things. Sometimes we need to be knocked out. And when we're knocked out, it's at those points that the Lord is saying, I'm here to save you. I'm here to save you. You know, we aren't faithful enough. We can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. Confessing Jesus as Savior means we believe that we are completely and wholly unable to save ourselves. You can't say, I can do a little bit. No. You are no different than the drowning person. Until you see yourself as the drowning person, you cannot be saved. You cannot confess Jesus as Savior because you don't need Jesus as Savior. Meaning, If you believe Jesus, if you confess and say, I believe Jesus is Savior, you're saying, I'm unable to save myself. So that's the first assumption. Second is, Savior assumes Jesus does all the work of saving. It's logical, makes sense, right? And he had to do it by perfectly obeying the Father when he lived his life. That perfect life qualified him as being able to save you know, a lifeguard goes through all sorts of qualification tests. They have to work hard to be at a point where now they're able to actually swim and save somebody. Well, Jesus had a qualification test too. It was to live the perfect life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteousness. The one man's obedience he was tempted in every way, the Hebrews writer says, yet without sin. And let us not think that was easy for Jesus. It is harder to not give in to sin than to give into it. It's much easier to give in to sin. It's much more difficult to not and feel the tug of wanting to. And so we are unable to save ourselves because we're rebellious against God by nature and we do things always to our self-benefit. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, meaning he yielded his will to the Father, and that is most seen. His whole life is that, and we see it climaxed at the cross. And so he underwent all temptations, everything. He passed every test to perfectly obey the Father, which makes him qualified to save us. Thirdly, the Savior assumes a life-threatening problem. We have to actually believe we are dying. Spiritually speaking, we are in the ICU on our deathbeds. It's not that we are a little have the sniffles. It's not that we have a slight fever and feel a little achy. No, we are on the ICU spiritually speaking. We are we we're just before death. And without intervention, We have no hope. George George Neiman, he told me a story of his mother 12 years ago, and he said it actually at the devotion, so I think I could repeat it since it was already public. 12 years ago, his mother was on the verge of death due to cancer, but the oncologist at the time found a clinical trial for a drug that saved her life for another 12 years, literally at the last moment. But imagine if she and her family said, as she laid in her weakened, frail state, death state, said, I'm not dying. I'm totally fine. I don't need this medicine. I don't need anyone's help. I mean, imagine if she said that. We would think she's foolish. We would think there's something wrong with her. Of course she's dying. Look at you. You're on your deathbed. But my friends, This is what we're like spiritually when we are unwilling to admit that we actually have a serious problem. We are in a perilous state, a deathbed state. And perhaps we have to understand that our self-will is still keeping us from seeing what is true, what is real. Every day without Jesus is a day we're preparing for death eternally. We shouldn't need a virus to get to this place. Jesus is a savior because we need saving from a deadly condition. And it's not COVID-19. It is our hard-hearted rejection of God and left unchecked. We will succumb to a death far worse than physical death. So we must confess this grave mortal problem. And at the cross of Calvary, There is a life-saving treatment for this condition. The person who confesses Jesus Christ as Savior has acknowledged this condition and is ready for the healing power of the gospel of Christ. The last assumption is this. Savior assumes that we are saved for eternal, joyous life forever and ever and ever. We're not just saved from a life-threatening situation. We're saved to something. We're saved eternally for something astounding and breathtaking, astonishing, indescribable. The lifeguard has not just pulled us onto the beach, given us CPR and said, all right, see you later. And we're there sputtering with our mouth, getting the water all out of her, gurgling and just spitting it all out and saying, oh, I feel miserable. The father, the lifeguard is taken us home, brought us to this incredibly glorious place and said, you're welcome to my home. You who were once an orphan, you're now welcomed as a son, as a daughter. There's endless joy and freedom for you where no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows forever. And take a look around. You see all these people? You know, we're we're looking and we're seeing a mirage right now. This is fake what we're seeing, a shadow land. Because this mirage is this. I see before me six other people. You see before you physically a few people, two, three. Maybe you're on your own. And you think, what are you talking about? This is a mirage. One day when you enter the Father's home, forever and ever, a great cloud of witnesses. People will surround you. I want to tell you the story that George told me. I actually had to look it up, and uh, it's the story of a, a missionary named Henry Morrison, and his he and his wife were returning after forty years of faithful service as missionaries from Africa. As the ship, they took a ship. This is in the eighteen hundreds. As the ship neared the dock, Henry said to his wife, "Look at that crowd! They haven't forgotten about us." However, unknown to Henry, The ship also contained President Teddy Roosevelt. He was returning from a big game hunting trip in Africa. So Roosevelt stepped from the boat with great fanfare. As people were cheering, flags were waving, bands were playing, reporters were waiting for his comment. Henry and his wife stepped off the boat and were completely unnoticed. They hailed a cab, took them to the one-bedroom apartment, which had been provided by the mission board. Over the next few weeks, Henry tried, but he couldn't put that incident behind him. He was sinking deeper and deeper into depression when one evening he said to his wife, this is all wrong. This man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody throws a big party. We give our lives to the faithful service to God for all these years and no one seems to care. And his wife cautioned him, you shouldn't feel this way. Henry replied, I know, but I just can't help it. It just isn't right. And his wife said, Henry, you know God doesn't mind if we honestly question him. You need to tell this to the Lord and get this settled now. You'll be useless in ministry until you do. So Henry Morrison went to his bedroom, got down on his knees, and he began to pour out his heart to the Lord. Lord, you know our situation, what's troubling me. We gladly served you faithfully for years without complaining. But now, God, I just can't seem to get this incident out of my mind. After about 10 minutes of fervent prayer, Henry returned to the living room with a peaceful look on his face. His wife said, it looks like you resolved the matter. What happened? And Henry replied, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming, but no one even met us at as we returned home and when i finished it seemed as though the lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said but henry you're not home yet you're not home yet hebrews 12:1 says that when we go home there's a great cloud of witnesses jesus says heaven rejoices when even one sinner returns and confesses jesus as savior What a day to look forward to. This is not how life will be. This is but a mirage. There will be a day where we will be rejoicing, delighted, with gratitude and excitement and zeal and passion. We are saved to something. That is worth living for. That is worth suffering for. That is worth confessing Jesus. Who saved us. Author Randy Alcorn says this. We were all made for a person and a place. Jesus is the person. Heaven is the place. If you know Jesus, I'll be with you in that resurrected world. With the Lord we love and with the friends we cherish, we'll embark together on the ultimate adventure in a spectacular new universe, awaiting our exploration and dominion. Jesus will be the center of all things, and joy will be the air we breathe. And right when we think it doesn't get any better than this, it will. Do you believe this? You have to believe this. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's give thanks to the Lord and pray together and prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love. And we pray that as we remember all that Jesus did, he is our immovable rock. He is our anchor. When all else tries to push him aside, he will not turn aside. And we know this to be true because he actually live this out perfectly on that cross 2000 years ago thank you Lord Jesus you've given everything so that we might have life in you today I pray that there would be some who would confess Jesus as Lord for the first time that it would be more than mere words that they would be truths of our soul in this place, in this time where things seem so bleak, you are so faithful and true. And this bread and wine reminds us of that. So I pray that there would be some who would trust in the name of Jesus today and be a life changed forever, a relinquishing of our wills. Oh God, we also pray for those who perhaps are believers of Christ but are tired and worn and weary. I pray for strength strength pray, O God, that you would show them that you are with them, that you are the God who saves them. But they need to relinquish control as well. They need to say, I surrender all. I surrender all, my will, my hopes, my dreams, all my efforts. I surrender it all. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. May that be our heart's cry. Let me give you thanks and pray.